0: You would open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll tell you what we did for part of our Thanksgiving holiday. The day before Thanksgiving, um, I went out with my children. And we shot five hundred rounds of ammunition, <laughs> and uh, with my friends, uh, we shot these um, shotguns with the clay discs that were shot up in the air and uh, did pretty well at that, and uh, but I'm I've got to brag on my daughter. Um, we also shot pistols, and my my middle daughter Molly had a nine millimeter Glock hit the uh, bullseye three times and was consistently every time she shot. And um, so I grew up in the country, as you can tell, and uh, but I could not imagine. Uh, so, think twice before you come around our house. <laughs> I'll put Molly on you. So, but that was part of our Thanksgiving. Shifting gears dramatically. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 24. I'm sorry, verses 1 through 10. Uh, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set and set before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles and when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me they gave me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas get- the right hand of fellowship to me to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that as your word is opened up and preached, that you would encourage the brokenhearted, that you would humble the prideful and that uh, you would uh, lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in every heart whether the heart be in rebellion to you or whether the heart be in submission to you I pray that Jesus Christ would use his word and by his spirit and the pow- and the spirit using the power of the word that every heart would submit to and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in His name, Amen. When Connie saw my outline for this sermon, and there's an outline provided on the back of your bulletin, and Connie is our church secretary. She got quite a bit of humor out of it. See, this issue of circumcision keeps coming up. And so I felt like I should give some background. And so the first point being, what is the meaning of circumcision? And why did God require that it be observed? She thought I was digging myself into a hole that I didn't want to be in and wouldn't be able to get out of. Um... And uh, thought that this was, was quite humorous, and I could see your humor. Well, I'm telling you this morning, just to set you at ease, I'm not going to mention the word knife. Uh, I am going to explain circumcision theologically. It's very difficult to understand the book of Galatians without understanding the place of circumcision in the Jewish mind. The, people, the Jewish people, what they had done essentially was they had distorted the meaning of circumcision by turning it on its head. Instead of, a, instead of circumcision being a visible reminder uh, of their need for salvation, The Jews turn circumcision into a means of salvation. Uh, It's not unlike what people uh, do with baptism. Baptism is a visible need for you to be regenerated for you to have a new heart, to have a new life in Jesus Christ. Also, it is a picture of your need to have your sins washed away. But it is surprising how many people will turn it on its head and will say that baptism is the way that a person is saved. The Roman Catholic denomination uh, does that uh, in a very widespread way, but even many Protestants want to get their children baptized because they want to make sure their children are going to heaven. Baptism, just like circumcision, does not save a person. It is a visible picture that God has given us that tells us that we do need to be saved. And that only God can do it. You can be a baptized sinner. You can be an unbaptized sinner. But please understand, the waters of baptism will never save you. So what is the meaning of circumcision? And why did God require that it be observed? Uh, You should know that circumcision was instituted in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 17. That's a very important uh, chapter in uh, the, the Bible. And it was a sign of the covenant that God was making with Abraham and his offspring. Uh, God said, I will be a God to you and to your to your offspring. Uh, circumcision is one of the two sacraments of the Old Testament, the other being that, uh, pa- the Passover. Circumcision, um, as I'm saying, is something of a sacrament of the Old Testament. It was a visible sign to the Jews that their hearts were wicked and rebellious. And that they needed a new heart. Or we might say theologically, they needed to be regenerated. Or in the, the modern sense that we talk about it today, they needed to be born again. And so listen to the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. God is very clear in what He says about circumcision. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, He's speaking to the Jews, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Just like the hymn. The implication being from the hymn uh, from earlier, that we, He came to deliver us. We needed delivering. He came to set us free. We were in bondage to sin. He's saying, circumcise your hearts. Do not be stiff-necked any longer. And the clear message is that the Jews indeed were stiff-necked. That they indeed were rebellious. That they indeed needed to have their hearts Completely changed, or as Paul, or as Moses said, to be circumcised. Moses said it again in Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse six: "The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you might live." In other words, if your heart is not circumcised, it's impossible for you to love Him. That uh, it is impossible. Um, for you to live Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 the prophet says circumcise yourselves to the Lord circumcise your hearts you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done burn with no one to quench it the implication being if their hearts were not circumcised, they would be doing the evil that was so wicked in God's sight. That without circumcision, the pattern of the wickedness and rebellion would not be broken in their lives, and we're not talking about physical act of circumcision. Paul is talking or not Paul, I'm getting ahead of myself. Moses in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah four four, he is talking to individuals who were physically circumcised when they were young babies. They had already been physically circumcised, and yet he's telling them, circumcise your hearts. So can you understand that the circumcision, the physical circumcision, was a picture of the need that they had to be circumcised inwardly, not by a physical knife. by God's Holy Spirit. They needed a new heart. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. He says, A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly. In other words, this has the physical sign of circumcision. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. That's the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And then a little more extended passage, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul says, In Christ you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Notice how he links this. Having a spiritually dead nature and an uncircumcised um, nature. Same exact thing. So when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with His regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What the Scripture is saying here, and I know I've kind of been up here in the theological stratosphere a little bit. Let me bring it down to you personally. What the Bible is saying is that before you came to Christ, you were spiritually dead. Spiritually unable to follow God, spiritually unable to please Him. And you would have continued in your spiritual, spiritually dead uh, nature, but God through the preaching of the gospel and through the power of His Spirit, raised you to life in Jesus Christ. It is because of Christ that you are in Christ. Not because you had superior wisdom. Not because you had superior ethics. Not because you had superior upbringing. It is because of Christ that you are in Christ. He raised you from from spiritual death. He is the one who enabled you To believe the gospel. He is the one who drew you uh, to Himself. And this circumcision language is uh, symbolic of, uh, uh, physically symbolic of what God did for you in Jesus Christ. If you are outside Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer, and you're still dead in your sins. You need to be regenerated. You need to be born again. Coming to Christ. I'm sorry, coming to church is not the sign that you're saved. Reading the Bible is not the sign that you're saved. Giving money to the church is not the sign that you are saved. Being circumcised in your heart. In other words, being a new creature in Christ. Loving God more than you love yourself. Loving His law more than you love your own desires. Following Him. Producing spiritual fruits Those are the visible signs that you have been circumcised inwardly. Now, the question becomes, why would God require circumcision to be observed? I was thinking about that this week, and the previous week. Because it seems that circumcision has caused a lot of confusion. Here we have the whole book of Galatians. There's a lot of confusion in the book of Galatians. And they're saying, well, it seems like circumcision saves us. Well, I don't think the communication, or the confusion was... by text verses uh, in chapter two, verses one through eleven. Uh, Paul is defending his apostleship, and he's also uh, bringing Peter into the picture. And he says that they are partners in the gospel. Peter is an apostle to the circumcised. Paul is, a, is an apostle to the uncircumcised. And so the question becomes, how does how did Paul's preaching uh, to the Gentiles differ from Peter's preaching to the Gentiles? Peter's preaching to the to the Jews uh, was basically that the Jews had murdered the Messiah. And I want to just read a couple a few passages here. Uh, From Acts chapter 2, this is Peter's preaching, the first Christian sermon. Uh, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you... He says, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. In other words, he is trying to persuade these prideful Jews, these self-righteous Jews, that they really are unrighteous because they were so wicked and hated God so much that they are the ones who killed the Messiah. Or Acts chapter 3, the next sermon he preaches. In the middle of his sermon, he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though you had decided, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. That we are witnesses of this, and he goes on and on, um, persuading them. You murdered the author of life. Acts 4 uh, this is the third sermon that Peter preached uh, Peter filled what the Holy Spirit said to them and he's preaching to the uh, rulers and elders of the people if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed then know this you and all the people of Israel it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed he is the stone the builders rejected which has become the capstone salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven uh, by which we must be saved. The next sermon is actually Stephen in uh, Acts chapter 7. Stephen, again preaching to the Jews, he says, "...you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts..." See, we've come full circle. He's talking about the need for uh, circumcised hearts. "...you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one." And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. He is trying to take away all of their righteousness. He is trying to show them that they are indeed rebellious, stiff-necked, dead in their sins. And the law which they thought would save them, it really was condemning them. Paul, on the other hand, preached a little differently to the Gentiles. For example, in Acts chapter 13, verses 47 and 48, For this is what the Lord has commanded us, and he's preaching to the Gentiles, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And we all know Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. The Apostle uh, Apostle Peter to the uncircumcised emphasizes their rebellion, emphasizes their wickedness. They murdered Christ. Paul to the Gentiles emphasizes God's love for the Gentiles, his willingness to save them, his free grace that is given to them apart from the law. And so that raises a question How should we preach today? Well, the question becomes who is the audience? And what are the needs? The Lord Jesus Christ preached on hell more than anyone else in the entire Bible. But He didn't preach on hell to those who are outside the church, to the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunkards. He preached on hell to those who were inside the church. I think this is one thing that I want you to understand this morning. We, as Christians, when we come and gather together, our struggle is to become prideful, to become haughty, to think that we are better than those people out there. And the message to us is repent of our pride. The message to us is humble yourselves daily. The message to us is never to forget that we are saved by grace, not by anything else we do. And that's a little bit different message than we would give to someone who is an unbeliever living out in the world. Yes, the same gospel. We would just apply it a little differently. I'm going to try and illustrate that a little bit more. Um, I'm going to make a decision here. I'm going to illustrate that and let that be the end, and I'll pick up with this sermon next week. I want to illustrate, when I'm talking to an unbeliever, uh, someone who's outside the church, maybe has had some, I grew up in the south, so most people I've talked to have some church affiliation or some church knowledge. And I ask them the two questions that D. James Kennedy likes to ask. I call them the two diagnostic questions. If you were were to die tonight, uh, do you know for certain whether you'd go to heaven? And they'll answer. Um, And then I'll ask them the second question. Let's say you were to die tonight and you stood before God and God said, Why should I let you into my heaven? And they'll give their answer. I've only had Christians... Uh, who are strong in their faith, answer this question correctly. Everyone else gives me a works-oriented answer. And nobody, when they give that works-oriented answer, mentions the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm just smiling inside. And I work them over. You mean to tell me you're not mentioning Jesus Christ in your... And I just, I, like I say, I work them over. I do it with a smile on my face. And then I try to show them that they have absolutely no standing before God. By the time I'm finished with them, they're saying... Well, why are you telling me about salvation? I can't be saved, and I don't think you can be. And they're telling me I can't be saved either because I don't have any righteousness. And I say, well, good, you're getting the point. And when I talk to them, and you've seen me use this illustration about um, my book of sins being placed on Christ and God the Father punishing Him. And then when I talk about Christ's book of sins being given to me, and when God the Father sees me, He sees Christ. All my sins, past, present, future, taken away. I see people, I see the Holy Spirit many times right at that point. Uh, come and, and grab them and they realize that there is life in Jesus Christ. More often than not, I don't need to beat them up with their sins. I don't need to point out their pride. I simply need to illustrate the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That is the message that they need. That is the message we need as well. But let me urge you, brothers and sisters, take that message to your own heart. Preach it to your own heart, reminding yourself that no matter how long you walk with Christ, you'll never be any better than the day that you came to Him. That you are undeserving of His salvation. That you could never earn it, deserve it. That God is not pleased with you because of the lump sums of tithes that you have given over the years. Or of the things that you've done for the church. Or the things you've done for Him. Or the people you've led to Christ. He is only pleased with you. First of all, because he loved you, secondly, he sent his son to die in your place to pay the penalty that you could never have paid that you never and give you a gift that you could never ever, ever deserve. like I said, we'll finish this sermon next week. let's go ahead and uh, pray together. Lord God, I pray for our congregation and I pray that you would help them to keep their heart turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in humility. Father, I know how hard that struggle is because it is my struggle every day. Father, I ask that you would keep us humble. I pray that you would keep us on our knees. Father, I pray that you would keep us, remind remind us continually that the salvation we have, we never will deserve. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. our hymn of responses